Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover. And so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. Hey everyone, a few notes before we get to this week's interview. I want to let you know that starting next month, I'll be launching the much-anticipated video live stream feature for the Unspeakable podcast, the discussion series called Functional Adults Conversing. This is free for subscribers to the second and third tier levels of the Patreon page, and it gives you a chance to interact with me and, quite often, guests of the podcast about topics discussed here and much more. Now, generally, this will be a once-a-month event, but I'm kicking it off in October with two events. The first will be Monday, October 12th at 7 p.m. Eastern and will feature dating coach Evan Mark Katz, who was the guest a couple of weeks ago. I'll be delving in even deeper with him about issues of dating, mating, biological imperatives, the incel phenomenon, lots of stuff. And of course, you can ask questions and interact with him, too. The second event will be Thursday, October 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern and will feature Sasha Ayad the therapist I spoke with in August who works with teens and young adults struggling with gender dysphoria and issues of gender identity. Now, to date, Sasha's episode has been downloaded more times than any other interview on this podcast, and I've been told by lots of people that the conversation was the most honest, insightful, and thoughtful that they've ever heard on this extraordinarily sensitive topic. Sasha has generously agreed to talk with me again on a live stream and take your questions. So you can subscribe at the Patreon on the second and third tier levels that will get you access to all such events. And it also just really, really helps me out. So thank you again. And here is this week's episode. I want people to know the truth. That seems like the service that I can provide. And oftentimes the truth is not what we are presented with more and more especially now with social media and with you know seven second video clips that get shared millions of times with no context and if i can be a a voice going back and saying like no 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 like let's explore the whole thing let's find out what happened what really happened not our convenient uh interpretation of what happened then that's the kind of the only service I can provide. I mean, I'm, I'm a shitty driver. I'm a shitty cook. Like, I'm not a particularly good spouse. Like, I can. I only have so many talents in the world. But like, questioning everything is one of them. 
Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest this week is podcast host and journalist, maybe former journalist, Katie Herzog. Katie is the co-host, along with Jesse Single, who's definitely still a journalist, of Blocked and Reported, a podcast devoted to disentangling and analyzing internet dramas, particularly social media dramas, and even more particularly Twitter dramas. It launched in March and almost immediately became wildly successful, tapping into the public's collective exasperation at manufactured outrage and bullying in the name of moral certitude. Katie, who's a former writer for Seattle's alternative weekly newspaper, The Stranger, talks about her political evolution, her professional evolution, the perils of admitting to your own confusion, and the power of intellectual honesty, even if it comes with the pain of losing peer groups. Please note that an extended version of this interview is available for Patreon subscribers. In that version, Katie talks about, among other things, getting kicked out of Seattle's queer community, and the fact that so many of her lesbian friends have become trans men. We also ask whether people like Patti Smith and David Bowie would be trans if they were coming of age today. It's great stuff. So if you're interested, go to patreon.com slash theunspeakable. And in the meantime, here's my interview with Katie Herzog. Katie Herzog, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thanks for having me, Megan. So congratulations on the podcast, Blocked and Reported. You launched it back in May. Is that right? May of this year? Time has really gotten away with me. I think we launched it in April, March. I'm not oh, sure. We, wow. launched the pa- the, we launched the Patreon in May. And so that's the, that's the exciting thing, the, the fact that we're getting paid for it. But the podcast itself, we waited like two months before, before we started to monetize. Okay, okay. And you really launched it at exactly the right time. It could not have been better timing. So can you actually describe that moment as you see it and why you think the show resonated with so many people? And just actually, I'm assuming that many of the listeners are familiar with you and the show. But for those who aren't, tell us what the show is about in general and why you think it was just so resonant. Sure. So the podcast is called Blocked and Reported, and I host it along with Jesse Single, who is a writer in New York, much more accomplished writer than I am, and a harder worker too, which is exactly what you want in a podcast partnership. And so Jesse and I have, we've been friends for several years, and we have a sort of similar beat. Um, Before I started the podcast, I was a writer at The Stranger, which is Seattle's Alt Weekly. And my beat there was sort of it wasn't unlike yours, really. I, I wrote cultural criticism. I wrote a lot about the media. I wrote a lot about the internet. In particular, over the last couple of years, I've been writing about what we now call cancel culture. Although when I first started writing about it, we didn't have the name. And so I was trying to sort of figure out if this thing was was a thing, if this was, a you know, and still lots of people argue that it's not. But I was seeing this trend, particularly online, of people getting canceled. And so I wrote a lot about that, uh, which is something Jesse is also interested in. And so we started the podcast right after I got laid off from The Stranger. And uh, so I, it was a COVID layoff, um, which, you know, should be terrifying. And it, and it was terrifying, but it ended up being really kind of the best thing that's happened to me because we started the podcast. And the original idea for it was, uh, I think, our, our like the tagline that we had sort of informally discussed was like um, a podcast about dumb Internet bullshit. <laughs> and That is what it's about, but it's really evolved just in the last couple months that we've been doing it. So I think it's now, I tell people it's a show about the internet and what it's doing to us. 
And that encompasses a lot of things. But we, of course, we talk about the current events of the day and oftentimes how they are mediated by and through online culture and, and, and the discourse. But so it's a, you know, it's cultural criticism. It's a lot of media criticism. It's a lot of us just bitching about things that we don't like. Uh, that's probably 70% of it, I would say. That's an evergreen that will never, right, uh, right. never go out of style. But was there something going on? I mean, there was a lot going on at that time, obviously. But like, okay, so March, that was the beginning of the lockdowns. That was the pandemic. That was a lot of confusion and incoherence around the public health messaging and, you know, the different media framings. Like, how much of that kind of just confusion and exasperation do you think had to do with why people connected so strongly to the show? I think that's a lot of a lot of it. And COVID was, of course, integral to not just the starting of the podcast, but lots of the conversations that we've had. But I think Jesse and I both and you as well, probably, I suspect, and a lot of people who listen to the podcast right now are having a sort of a recalibration of their trust in the institutions that we have previously trusted. And I'm talking specifically about the media here. And there was a lot I was reading about COVID or about George Floyd, which happened soon after that, and the protest in uh, in response to the death of George, George Floyd, that I didn't think held up to scrutiny. And when you stop trusting the media, when you stop trusting the news, it can be a really destabilizing experience. And I think a lot of people are going through that right now. I mean, just the like the response to the Harper's letter, which both you and I signed. Yes. And we should remind our readers what the, yeah. our readers, this is yeah. a podcast that you read, actually, I forgot to mention. It's, well, another it's reason we, we started the podcast was because um, I like through, I was DMing with you and you, you said probably maybe joking at one point, you said something like, uh, I think words are dead. And I was, you know, I was like, she's right. Uh, writing well, is dead. They're dead to me. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the Harper's letter was an open letter put forth by a, a handful of sort of public intellectual writer types, kind of just making a general statement about the state of the culture. I don't know. How do you even summarize it? I feel like I need to get a like a elevator pitch for it. Yeah. It was a letter in defense of free speech and not a First Amendment defense, but uh, the culture of free speech. And a lot of people refer to it now as the cancel culture letter. It didn't actually mm. use the term cancel culture, no. which I think it's good because the term is so ambiguous. But yeah, it was a, you know, it was, it was somewhere between anodyne and full throated, I would say. <laughs> yes. As we all should be. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but right. So there was this moment. I mean, was that already a few months ago? And it's going to be even longer than that because, you know, okay, we're recording this in late August. So people might be listening a couple of weeks or a, a month from now. I mean, just suddenly, I think recalibration is the perfect word. There's a recalibration of our, of our trust in, news reporting in media, in framing, and it is incredibly destabilizing. So the Harper's letter was one of, was a sort of shot over the bow and that a lot of people started saying, well, like all these, you know, these academics, these novelists, these journalists, et cetera, musicians in some cases, Wynton Marsalis <laughs> signed it. Right. I was the only person who signed the letter podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's only room for one. So apparently you, so. Uh, you got in right under the wire. Everyone on the letter has a podcast host, That's but I'm true. the only one who primarily identifies <laughs> Everyone as a podcast has host. one since the letter. It, <laughs> yeah. it was a springboard to podcast. So yeah, okay. So there's like suddenly, I think too, like everybody was watching the news. So the lockdown started and it was like, we already were consuming too much news. And now suddenly like, 
I was doing something I hadn't done for decades, which was watching the news on TV. Like I was watching CNN several hours a day, which had not happened probably ever for me. And yeah, I think you you suddenly start to like hear information that doesn't line up with what you're observing in real life and and what people are talking about on social media. Some of those people you trust more than others. But yeah, it's incredibly discombobulating. And it really like it makes you start to feel like some crazy conspiracy theorist, even if you're just trying to like line up the facts in your own head and, and be reasonable. And it makes you you don't know what's happening in the world. I mean, that's to me the thing that's been sort of the most destabilizing about all of this is that like I'm a public radio fanatic and I have been my still, entire life. Are you still? I, well, I still listen to it all the time, all the time. Like it's the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I turn on the radio. Wow. Yeah. And it's just it's that's a lifelong habit. And I listen to it, but now I don't trust it anymore. And part of that, it, you know, and I think that NPR is better than a lot of sources, but part of that is in the response to the Harper's letter, for instance, there was a segment on a show called 1A, which I believe used to be the Diane Rehm show. Um, so it's sort of a classic public radio right. show. And it's it, they have Diane Rehm retired. They have a new host, a, a new name, total rebranding. And it's now sort of more of a show about identity. And they did a segment about the Harper's letter. And the host referred to my co-host, Jesse Single, and she said something about how he has a history of making transphobic comments. That's not true. It's just not true. But that has been repeated over and over throughout social media and online and through people who don't like Jesse to the point where I'm sure she believes it. Yeah. I'm sure she, her producers told her that this was true and she just said it. And then, of course, they didn't issue any sort of correction when confronted with the fact that there was no evidence supporting this thing that they had broadcast to hundreds of thousands of people. In fact, what they did is they took the segment out of the out of the online version, but didn't acknowledge it at all. So I heard it live. If I hadn't heard it live, I wouldn't have known that this had happened. Wow. So things like that happen or, you know, an NPR show or, or the cable news or the local news or whatever will will do a segment on something that you actually know about. And when they get it wrong, it makes it really hard for me to trust the other things that are coming from their pages. And I'm not talking about opinion sections. I'm talking about reporting. Do you ever wonder if in some ways it was ever thus and we're just noticing now because yeah. we have so many channels of information? So I, I want to get into this a lot deeper. But before we do that, I want to back up a little bit because I've heard you talk about how when you were younger, as a teenager in college, maybe as a younger adult, you were the kind of person who generally you know, ran with the pack in terms of your liberal lefty identification. So, you know, and and I also know you grew up in the South, probably in a place where left signaling might not have been the default. But yeah, can you say what you mean by that and and what your sort of liberal progressive identity, what were the contours of that and how has that started to change? If at all, maybe that's not even accurate. Not that you're not, you're certainly on the left. Right. So how are the the dimensions are a little bit different though, I think. Right. So I was um, I'm the the child of two college professors in a my parents taught at a small or sort of a, a medium sized state school in rural North Carolina in the Appalachian area. And this was a, a place that was, uh, you know, there was a university there. So there was more liberal thought, more liberal people than in the surrounding counties. But it was still pretty conservative, um, maybe sort of a um, Democrat in sort of the old school, like 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 early Strom Thurmond kind of way. So um, so there was there was there was a lot of that around. Very religious. Uh, my parents were were atheists, and and my twin sister and I were the only the only kids in our third grade class who hadn't been baptized. And so I was definitely 
in some ways an outsider there. I was also a, a young gay kid. I kind of didn't realize it at, at, at the time, but there was something politically a little bit different about about me and my family. And not that we were, you know, totally alone. There were my parents had lots of friends who were liberals, and my friends tended to be from similar backgrounds. You know, academics tend to be more liberal. But that was the environment that I grew up in. And then, you know, I went to college, I came out, I started becoming immersed in sort of the queer scene. All of my friends for years were queer, mostly lesbians. Now half of them are non-binary or trans men. Um, That is something that has happened. Not something I would have predicted when I was, you know, 18 years old and surrounded by all of these like very proud dykes. So, but that, that was the circle that I ran with. And I was a uh, a believer in everything that I that I heard on the left and and you know uh I was sort of a, an Amy Goodman liberal or leftist um I until 2016 I supported Bernie Sanders or during 2016 I supported Bernie Sanders obviously I voted for Hillary Clinton but that was the sort of liberal that I was and then in 2017 I wrote a piece for the stranger about detransition and it was a reported piece about this small but growing population of people who transition from one sex or gender together and then change their minds. And there was this crazy outcry about the piece. And I've I've talked about it so much, like people can read the piece uh, and see how transphobic it is for yourself. But I maintain there was nothing transphobic. It wasn't problematic. It was deeply reported. It had trans sensitivity readers. And it wasn't even your idea, was it? It was assigned to you. Oh, no, it was my idea. Okay, All right. It was your idea. But it had actual trans sensitivity readers like within the publication. Not within the publication. We had trans people from outside the publication read it. Okay. There weren't trans people on the editorial staff, at least at the time. But it was also read by some, like, one in particular was read by a a colleague of mine who sort of made her name um, writing about sexual assault, real, like, diehard feminist kind of SJW character. And she didn't have a problem with it until the piece came out. And then after the piece came out, apparently she had a problem with it. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's sort of what I started seeing was a lot of people not reading the piece or misinterpreting it, assigning things to me, assigning values that I don't have um, to me, and just treating the piece like it was hate speech, which it wasn't. And that was the first sort of crack in my, my identity as a liberal, because I, I started to see for the first time, like, wait a second. If they're wrong about this, what else are they wrong about? And by they, I I mean we. Right. And over the years, since then, this was in 2017, I have gone through this sort of political evolution. And that hasn't changed the way that I vote. I will still be voting for Joe Biden, uh, you know, come November. I have not become a conservative, but I have started to question the leftist or liberal orthodoxy a lot more. And I've also gone through a... through. A shift in terms of identity. So before all this, I considered myself a feminist, an environmentalist, a conservationist, a liberal. And now I sort of am all of those things still in terms of the values that I hold. But I don't care about the labels. And in fact, I think the labels are actually dangerous. So I don't consider myself a feminist anymore Mm. or an environmentalist. And part of that is because I know enough now about how activists work and how activism works that I find that I don't trust activists. Because when your identity gets wrapped up in a cause, it becomes really difficult to evaluate that cause on its merits. And I want to be able to evaluate causes. I want to have a more distant perspective on things. I want to see the world as it is and not as I think it should be or, you know. Or how it's convenient to portray it for the sake of 
furthering an agenda, which may be exactly. a good agenda and a worthwhile agenda. But sure. if it's um, sort of if if it's foundationally unsound, then it will get nowhere. I still, like right. I mean, the political stuff aside, when did you start noticing that things that you wrote, if there was any kind of complexity to them, they were just not being read on the levels that you intended them to be read. Like, I feel like maybe around 2014, 2015, there was suddenly this shift in like either the attention span, I don't even want to say sophistication level of my readers because they were the same people. It was like the same crowd. Suddenly I would write something that had like, you know, a little bit of, you know, counter intuition or, you know, a little bit of just kind of like devil's advocacy. But, you know, it was still clear what I was saying and it was clear what side I was on. And there was like a sudden inability to read what I was saying. Yeah. Uh, Well, when did Twitter get big? Yeah. I I mean, I got on Twitter, I think, in like 2009 or eight. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it was that it was that early. But I remember it has changed. But Twitter has changed a lot. That's true. And the power of Twitter. I mean, the interesting thing about Twitter is that it's not actually a very popular social network. It's way less popular than Instagram. It's way less popular than Facebook. But it has all this power because of the people who are on it. And I'm not just talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about people like us. I'm talking about, you know, about the media. The Twitter is basically the media just like shit talking each other. Yep. You know. So do you ever find yourself like wondering, I think I'm seeing the real truth or I think that I'm kind of seeing through the bullshit or like I'm more skeptical than all these other people. But it's like I'm not that much smarter than these other people. Like a lot of them are a lot smarter than I am. So am I missing something? Like It's really like the the cognitive dissonance is like stratospheric. Yeah, I, I have that. I wonder that all the time. I've said this before, but sometimes I wonder if I'm outside looking at a cult or if I'm inside the cult looking outside the cult. And I think what you're talking about is a, is a really valuable skill. It's a it's a valuable quality for people to have, which is just epistemic humility. This idea that mm. you could be wrong, and I don't see a lot of that, especially from the um, sort of the dominant ideology, right? The people who work for the New York Times, for the most part, or Washington Post, or these other papers, who are now in a position of such cultural power that. I think they're just convinced that they're right. It's like over the past, you know, 10 years, liberals went from, you know, I I know you've lived in New York for a long time. You've lived in L.A. But in my world, living in, you know, rural North Carolina and in other southern cities, all in North Carolina, until not that long ago, conservatives really had the cultural power. You know, after 9-11, it was the Dixie Chicks who got canceled. You know, Um, there was this like this like patriotism that you couldn't question. And that has really changed. But I think that a lot of this is like, the, you know, I, I don't really like talking about the left as a, as a monolith yeah. or the right as a monolith. But if I can stereotype for a second, you know, it's like the left still thinks that we're the underdogs, but we're no longer the underdogs. Right. Well, I think the left has clearly won the culture wars. And I hate using the term culture wars and I hate using the term left as you do. I mean, I I feel like we need to come up with new terms for all of these like catch all phrases, cancel culture. I don't even like to say woke. Yeah, it's it's a very satisfying word just in terms of like the consonants and the way it rolls off the tongue. But it's just become diluted of, of all meaning. It has. And I, I'm worried at some point someone is going to go through my Twitter and just count the number of times that I've said that I've said the word woke. But it like rhymes with so many. It's so great. Like, yeah. I, you know, I had this idea of like the woke place. Like, you know, is your, yeah. is your workplace a woke place? Anyway, I'm sure I'm not the first. <laughs> Do you subscribe to the theory 
that one of the reasons this is happening was because like a whole cohort of mostly middle class, upper middle class, mostly white kids went to a certain kind of liberal arts school that started offering a certain kind of liberal arts degree these cultural studies programs that became much more prominent in the 90s and into the 2000s. And these people absorbed this kind of messaging, this intersectional theory, critical theory, and then went out and sort of populated the news media and the arts institutions and the nonprofits and all the rest. Like that is a kind of go-to explanation for this phenomenon. But I'm curious if you think like how much of that, what's the percentage of that you could say that's the cause of it. Is that, not, you know, 20% of it, 60% of the problem? What would you say? I don't know how to quantify that. And part of my difficulty in quantifying this is because I couldn't tell you a fucking thing I learned in college. Like, I just didn't absorb absorb information. I don't think so. It's possible I took, like, theory classes and I wouldn't have learned anything. And I think I'm actually not that different. Well, that then you must have taken them because I think that's yeah. what happens when you take yeah. them. You learn nothing. <laughs> totally. But I don't think I'm, I'm that different um, than the average college student. Where this might be different is at elite institutions, right? And I do think, yes, I do think that a lot of this started on campus. And, you know, just in the last couple of years, I would write about things happening on campuses and, and some of my colleagues would be like, eh, the, you know, they're just students. Students have always been crazy, which is true. And it's not like this sort of movement towards hyper political correctness is, you know, sprung up in 2016. This was around in the 90s. Yeah. This was around in the 80s. But, you know, clearly the problem is that these people don't stay on campus. They go in, into institutions and they where they do have real power, even assistants, even as, you know, associate producers at places like public radio. Like I, I worked in public radio, or this is actually probably more apropos. There's a, the, a public radio station in Seattle called KOW. And I found out recently that I have, I've been blacklisted from a show that I, I was on a couple of times. And this is sort of a, a weekly, uh, you know, they have a panel usually of three journalists or whatever. And I'm not on the show anymore. And that isn't because the host, who is a guy in his 50s, doesn't like me. He does like me. This is because there's a number of, of producers, junior producers, I believe, younger people within this organization who think that I'm problematic. I don't know if they've actually read any of my work, right. but they, they've heard that I'm problematic. They think that I'm problematic. And they do have the power to veto to override the bosses because yeah. I think the bosses are terrified of them Absolutely. because what they come armed with are allegations of bigotry. Yep. And that is just, and in this sort of hyper-educated, upper-middle-class, liberal environments, accusations of bigotry, it's character oh, assassination. that's the nuclear it's, option. Exactly. Exactly. Nobody can fight against that. And I mean, yeah, no, it's really a hostage situation. I think the culture is being held hostage by this ideology that it is embraced by actually such a tiny, tiny, tiny slice of, of real people, but it just has such outsized influence. I, you know, I think often like how much of this has to do with personal psychology as opposed mm -hmm. to like group psychology? Is that something that you think about? Yeah, that is interesting. I tend to think, I mean, I, I mean, I guess they're intertwined, right? I mean, I am interested in the the psychology of mob behavior, but of course, mobs are made up of individuals. So there's probably, you know, some element of both. You know, people want to be part of a cause. They want to be part of a group. They want to feel like they're on the quote unquote right side of history, which after the 2016 election and the, you know, um, the emergence of the resistance, I think there was this real palatable fear among 
people like us among, you know, good liberals that fascism was coming. You know, Donald Trump had been elected to office. And so people wanted to be a part of that. Um, and that leads to some good, but also a lot of bad. Do you ever feel like you're too invested in this stuff? Like you're too obsessed with it? Do you worry about yourself? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I feel like like there's something about it. And I've tried to write about this. Like, it's like a dog with a bone. Like, I just can't get enough of it. Like, part of it is because, you know, looking at these, you know, like the kinds of scenarios that you talk about on Blocked and Reported, I mean, part of the reason the show is so popular, I think, is because it's just like delectable. Like, it's kind of this combination of like voyeurism and schadenfreude, like just to see like ridiculous people being caught um, saying ridiculous things and, and, you know, being incredible hypocrites. It's kind of like, really satisfying. But then I sometimes feel like, God, get a life. Like, when are you going to get tired of hearing about these things? And yeah. there seems to be no no end to it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think there is no end to it. But there is something, um, I guess, fundamentally delicious about drama, which is a, what a lot of this stuff is. I mean, that said, I don't think that cancel culture is the biggest threat facing America right now. I, I don't. I don't think it's the biggest threat facing the world. I think there there are bigger things happening. But I reserve the right to care about the shit that I care about and not to be the person who is, you know, tweeting constantly about Trump violating the Hatch right. Act or whatever. And part of it is like, what is your skill set, right? Yes. So there are people who are great at reporting on Donald Trump or this local city council or the school board or whatever. And there are those of us who are not investigative reporters and who really prefer to comment. I mean, I think that really, <laughs> like, if like all things being equal, those people are more important. But that's just not, that's, those are not the skills I was born with. Well, also, like, just the way my interests tend to metabolize, I just kind of like the sort of the gray areas and the kind of strange strange angles into things like again like people always i'm sure they say this to you like why are you obsessing about these little you know drama internal dramas in the left when we have you know there are kids in cages and trump is in office and go down the list and i guess it's just as as a writer and as a thinker i just don't want to be obvious like i don't want to say the mm -hmm. thing that the everyone else is saying but maybe Absolutely. we should like I, sometimes i think like why are you just being like snobby and contrarian like what's the problem no i think about that all the time but still it's just you know my skill is not at saying the same thing that everybody else is saying the, the skill that i have is that i'm willing to say the things that people feel like they can't say and i think that in this moment that is a valuable skill to have you know and there's also probably something about our particular personalities you know, I never thought of myself as a contrarian before. And I, I still sort of I hate that term, which yeah. is, I guess, maybe the most contrarian thing that you can say is, no, I'm not a fucking contrarian. I know. Yeah. But I was looking at my mom like my mom was on she, like shared something I read on Facebook recently or something about a podcast or something. And one of her friends commented and said, like, what was Katie like as a teenager? And my mom just wrote back contrarian. And so apparently <laughs> this is something that has been within me for a long time. Do you think that there's a part of you that doesn't mind the you're able to be alone with yourself or alone with your thoughts such that you don't mind the social penalties of stepping out and talking about these things in this way yeah i do and that has changed like this i would not be able to talk about these things i would not be outspoken about where i disagree with my peers if i were 25 
and things like getting invited to parties was important to me. But I'm not 25. I'm 37 and I'm married. And so I don't have like if I were trying to date right now, that would be just like in Seattle. That would just be a total, like just a <laughs> well, nightmare. You could date Republicans. I could, yeah. I, I don't know how many like lesbian Republicans there are in Seattle, maybe a couple. So I do think that's part of it. I think that I'm less vulnerable to peer pressure than I was when I was younger. And I also just like give less of a shit about what people think about me. Although that's not true. So like the rule I sort of live by, like, I don't care if I don't respect you. I don't care what you think about me. If I do respect you, I will care about what you think about me and I will take it into consideration. But it does not particularly, it might annoy me to get dragged on Twitter by some like anime avatar or furry avatar, (laughs) but it doesn't like wound me. Right. Do you ever like feel like you are kind of arguing with your younger self? (laughs) That's a good question. I've never thought about that before, but I'm sure that younger me would probably hate older me and older me would absolutely, older me does absolutely hate younger me. I ask that because, I mean, I always had a pretty sensitive bullshit detector, even when I was a kid. But I know that I went along with certain trendy ideas and causes yeah. without thinking about it too much. Oh, sure. I, mean, I remember sure. like I was a freshman in high school or something when the the big Amnesty International concert, you know, um, the, the Bob Geldof sting, you know, uh, world tour, huge, huge mm-hmm. festival concert that was like all the rage. And I was a huge police and sting fan so Mm -hmm. of course like i decided to make it my full-time teenage job to be a be a fan of this amnesty international concert and you know like i had the t-shirt and i remember wearing the t-shirt to school and some like obviously much hipper and more with it upperclassmen said something like do you even belong to amnesty international do you even do you even know what amnesty international does brutal and uh I don't remember what my response was. And I think I, I don't know what I said, probably something that I thought was witty that wasn't very witty. But, you know, I am basically doing a version of what that upperclassman was doing with my readers every day. And I've been doing it for years. And I sometimes wonder if there's like some kind of masochistic impulse, like I need to go back and prove to myself that I'm not that shallow follower. Or maybe you're just an asshole. Who knows? Yeah, maybe so. I think that I think you're onto something. But I also think that like right now as a writer and as a primarily podcast host, because words are dead, I'm no longer writing. I want people to know the truth. That seems like the service that I can provide. And oftentimes the truth is not what we are presented with more and more, especially now with social media and with, you know, seven second video clips that get shared millions of times with no context. And if I can be a a voice going back and saying, like, no, 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 like, let's explore the whole thing. Let's find out what happened, what really happened, not our convenient uh, interpretation of what happened, then that's the kind of the only service I can provide. I mean, I'm, I'm a shitty driver. I'm a shitty cook, like, uh, not a particularly good spouse. Like, I can I only have so many talents in the world, but like questioning everything is one of them. And you feel that you're able to do that better in a conversational podcast format than, say, as an investigative journalist at this point? Uh, no, I think an investigative journalist would be <laughs> would actually be better at this point. It just I mean, to me, there's a lot of benefits of the podcast, but all of them are sort of um, like deeply self- selfish. Uh, I don't have to work that hard. I work basically one or two days a week. And writing right now doesn't pay well. So, you know, especially like when I was a staffer and I had some time to like dig into stories and I got a regular paycheck, it was one thing. 
And I definitely had more readers than um, than we have listeners. And also, like, I had a lot of readers who didn't like me and who disagreed with me. And I thought that was good because I wanted to force people to consider other perspectives. Um, it didn't always work, but at least I was in a place where I was the one person sort of giving contrary perspectives. And in a city like Seattle, which is politically very homogenous, I thought that was a, a service. I don't know that podcasts are a better avenue for that. In part because, I mean, you can have these like great long form conversations, but they're harder to absorb, right? And the other thing is that you you like tend to only attract your fans. You tend to only attract the people who agree with you. And pocket, no, there's not a lot of hate listening going on, I guess. Right, right. Like hate reading, people can hate read something pretty easily, but hate listening takes a whole, like that's a time commitment, which I think is why Jesse and I have gotten like shockingly little amounts of hate because of the podcast is because nobody wants to listen to it if they don't like <laughs> us. Um, so so I worry about that. You know, I worry about like this model that that we have and now you have with Patreon. It's a great model for me. It's fantastic. However, or with Substack, you know, lots of people doing these independent newsletters. However, we're creating more and tinier echo chambers yeah. and media silos. And that was one of the problems that emerged out of the election of Donald Trump. We realized, holy shit, the media doesn't know what people believe. Right. We are unable to consider perspectives outside of our own or our immediate circles. And I think that that so this is something I'm worried about with this new media landscape and all of these these institutions fracturing, even though it's been, frankly, great for me. That's a really good point. One of the reasons I love listening to podcasts is I feel like these topics in and of themselves are impossible to narrow down to the kind of narrative that you would need in a news article, even in a really long form piece of journalism, you're still you have an, a narrative thread, you have a set of facts that you're presenting, and you're, there isn't necessarily a lot of room in a written piece to say like, well, maybe it's this, I don't know, I thought this initially and I changed my mind. I mean, you can kind of yeah. do that, but there's just something so you know integral about the conversation that it yeah. allows for a lot of like hedging, and it just seems like to follow the the, the sort of way people think on a in a just more organic way. But I think you're right. All, all it's doing is really sort of taking the kinds of conversations people just used to have with their friends sitting around the table and making them public for lots of people to listen to. So right. I don't know. It's a good thing sort of like for us if we right. don't have those conversations anymore. But I think you're right. It's it's kind of just perpetuating the problem that got us here in the first place. Right. And then you have if you get really successful, you have like a Media Matters team devoted to listening to your podcast and taking out, you know, 20 second clips to try to cancel you if you if you get like Joe. Is that true? I wondered point. about because I was yeah. thinking like, oh, is the podcast the last place where nobody can uh, like, you know, do outrage archaeology on you? They're not going to bother to extricate your your gaffe. I think you got to be pretty worth uh, or pretty big, pretty like have it like Ben Shapiro. Apparently, there's people, you know, who are devoted to listening to his show and uh, and pulling out damning clips or, you know, Media Matters has always done that with uh, with Fox News shows. Right. That, can you imagine that job? Like your job is to like <laughs> watch someone who you desperately hate. <laughs> well, it's like opposition research, but yeah, yeah, yeah it is. How much of this is like just seeing people's mental illness play out in public? I very one I very much wonder about that. I think there's a lot of pathological behavior online and 
we see it playing out in ways that if this like happened in the real world, someone would like have a chat with you. You know, a right. friend would sit you down and be like, are you OK? You know, and we like I do this, too. Like we say things online we would never say to someone's face. Never. And that's not pathological. That's something else. Um, it's just bad behavior or just, I guess, the uh, the ease that a screen makes to like, I don't know dehumanize people. Right. But I wonder sometimes if it's causation or correlation. Like, is it Twitter mm-hmm. that is making people, people who might have a tendency towards, you know, obsessiveness or just being kind of unstable in some kind of way? Is it making them worse? Or are people who are a little bit unhinged drawn to these platforms? Probably both. I think there's a lot of narcissism involved as well. And were people so narcissistic before all this? I don't know. You've been around longer than I have. <laughs> yes, I have. Really? Yes, I have. I mean, I think everyone's always been, uh, you know, a, a little bit of an asshole. And, you know, we all contain multitudes. Mm-hmm. I, but it just we just were not hearing about every single thing everybody did. I mean, I, you know, I've I've tried to talk about this a lot. And I think that it sometimes gets resistance. It's like, you know, the, the news... You know, the world, it's less terrible than it's ever been. Right. But we're just hearing about every single terrible thing that happens. So it feels yeah. terrible. And so people are no more narcissistic or crazy or vindictive than they've ever been. We're just seeing them do it. I think that you might be onto something with that. I do think, you know, there are there are things that are probably a level of narcissism or focus on one's family, um, if we could um, maybe be a little bit more more uh, generous, is probably a, a natural human trait, you know, biologically speaking. We have a, a, an impulse to help ourselves and our families before other people. But I also think that, you know, there have been times in American history where people really do think of the greater good. And now is not one of those right. times. Even in the midst of a pandemic, uh, we are seem to be largely focused on ourselves. So what, the stories that you cover on Blocked and Reported, how do you decide? Is it just whatever is like sticking in your craw the most? If somebody is so clearly has like a, a personality disorder or a, a mental illness that is uh, driving their behavior, would you ever like just leave it alone? Like, how do you decide? No, we wouldn't leave it alone. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we recently did an episode on this bizarre controversy in science Twitter. Yeah. Where a woman who was a, a former professor at Vanderbilt University had made up basically a sock puppet Twitter account to defend herself against various charges of basically of bullying people of color. So she created a fictional, uh, I believe this woman was Navajo. She was bisexual. She was an anthropology professor at Arizona State. And then this woman killed off her character. We talked about that. You know, after she got busted, she told the New York Times that she was seeking mental health help. I don't know. I, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know if she has actual mental health issues. That seems like a crazy thing to do. It's also possible. I don't see how she can not. Like, what, how right. can she possibly think that there's a method to this madness? I mean, some people are just fucking evil. I think that's also possible. Or maybe not even evil, just like, I don't know what sort of thinking would like, how do you not realize you're going to get busted for this? But this woman also, I mean, people can listen to the show if they want, if they want details. But this woman also had a history of pretty similar behavior in her past, which, 
you know, is uh, I guess she she hadn't been the consequences at that point hadn't been great enough for her to stop. So is that crazy or is it just being a bad person? I, I'm in no position to judge. I think for us, the line there, like I did have some a few considerations about whether this is something that we should talk about. By the point we by the time we talked about it, it had been covered by The New York Times, it had been covered a lot of places. This was a a convert. This was trending. This was a conversation people were having. That said, there have been stories we haven't done because the people involved are private citizens. They're not public figures and it's not being covered widely by the media. So I do try to be responsible, even if somebody has something done something that I find particularly egregious. Is it my job to elevate the story of some private citizen who was an asshole? And I don't think that it is. I mean, I feel the same way about people, you know, footage of someone doing something bad, you know, offline. Somebody does something bad in the world. There's a a 15 second video clip and you put that on Twitter and that person goes viral and loses their job. I don't want to be the journalistic equivalent of that. You know, I don't want to be the Washington Post getting some woman fired for wearing blackface at a Halloween costume three years ago. And actually, like in that case, let me just say, so this woman wore blackface. She dressed as Megan. She dressed as Megan Kelly in blackface to a Halloween costume, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty layered. It was meta. Yes, it was. It was very meta. Yeah. Yes. But she got fired. Okay. But she got fired like three years after this was just yeah. something that happened. Right. It, it's sort of like the real world version of the tweet that you do that just is innocuous and it just sits there and people kind of like it and it's whatever. And then someone grabs a hold of it a week or two later and it goes viral and your life is ruined. Yeah. But it's the Washington Post putting two or three reporters on it for some reason. That was incredible. So what are Mm -hmm. some of the stories that you've covered on Blocked and Reported that were particularly satisfying to you? So the Sciencing by the one about uh, the performer Vanderbilt professor was satisfying because the story had been widely reported, but they'd left some things out. Um, and so I, I ended up talking to one of this woman's former colleagues and, and doing a little bit of additional reporting on that. And so that was satisfying. We did one last, last week on this guy, Cliff Mass, who is a former, he's a, he's a weatherman in Seattle. Very controversial. He has been for years. He is often accused of being a climate change denier, which is not true. He writes about climate change and about how fossil fuels are calling it. But he doesn't sort of toe the, the activist environmentalist line. Um, and he was fired from his job recently at a... Uh, so he he did the weather for a local um, public radio station, KNKX, here in Seattle. And he was fired from his job. And then there's a petition. These grad students and alumni um, started a petition to get him fired from his tenured University of Washington professor position, which is laughable because it's it's unconstitutional. You know, you cannot get a, a public employee fired for writing something on their blog you don't like. Um, anyway, so I ended up talking to him and doing a little bit of additional reporting on this. I found out that the the public radio station just a couple months before they fired this guy, and and I should say his the reason he was fired was because he wrote a blog post about uh, he like took a walk in downtown Seattle and he saw all the destruction in the aftermath of the um, you know post George Floyd riots and protests. And he compared it to Kristallnacht, which I think is a bad analogy. Definitely an unwise analogy. Right. Even if there is something about broken glass that sort of, you know, evokes, the, evokes that scene. Bad analogy. It was lyrical. Though. It was a lyrical yeah, analogy. It was lyrical, yeah. Um, and so he got fired from his job. And, and it turned out that the station had done a very thorough investigation into him just two months prior. They had hired the former public a- editor at NPR to look into this guy. And they spent lots of money to do this. 
money that it was I donate to this station. So maybe a little bit of that was my money. <laughs> and what this woman found was basically that he hadn't done anything wrong. She had one recommendation for the station, which was to take the link of from his blog off of uh, off of his like the, where they would archive his you know weather broadcast. Um, so. You know, they, they like got a climate scientist to look at his research and there were a few disagreements. But for the most part, the conclusion was that this guy hadn't done anything wrong. And then two months later, they fire him for a totally um, a totally separate mm -hmm. offense. Uh, so that one was that one was also interesting. We had Dan Savage on the show. We had you on the show. Um, those were both fun. <laughs> Thank you. Well, mine. I think I was your first guest, was I not? You were. You were talking about guest. my my Twitter dragging over my. Yes. My, uh, Unwise decision to write about Appalachia. To colonize Appalachia. That's right. That's right. How many of the um, of the stories that are coming up have something to do with COVID or the lockdowns? Like if this piece was not in the mix, what do you think things would look a lot different? I'm not sure things would be all that different. You know, there was a moment when COVID started where people were saying, like, is this going to kill the culture wars? I know. I thought so. I was I was hoping. But yeah, I mean, clearly the opposite has happened. And that doesn't entirely surprise me because, of course, like, you know, the George Floyd protests are deeply connected to COVID. They're deeply connected to the lockdowns. There's a reason that hundreds of thousands of people are able to take to the streets on a Wednesday to protest. And it's because they're not at work. Right. Right. So I think everything is connected to COVID at this point, even though COVID is not. We've, we've done a few a few COVID specific segments. But we don't focus on it. But I, I do think that, like, you know, anytime when historians are looking back at this very weird period of history, I think that COVID will be the will be the catalyst. Right. And COVID confusion just seems to take on a life that is so much more intense than like regular political confusion. Or I'm just confused about the media. I'm confused about how the media is reporting on COVID. I'm confused about the science of it. I think everybody is. But somehow, like, even admitting that you're confused has become kind of like a stigma. I feel like right. I have a couple of friends who, if I say, oh, I'm confused about this, they somehow think that I'm saying that I don't, that I think it's a hoax or something. You're, yeah, you're a COVID <laughs> truther. Yeah. I, like, have we stopped talking about whether or not it came from a lab? Like, is that just off yeah. the table? I told somebody that I thought it came from a lab last weekend and she looked at me like I was like Alex Jones was coming out of my head. <laughs> you know, and I think there's some compelling evidence that it came from a lab. Not that that, you know, like that's the thing, though. It's all mediated through the culture wars. Right. And so the possibility that COVID, that the origin of COVID was, uh, you know, a virus Escape from a lab, not through any sort of biological terrorism, or, or, and or not like right, that. and yes, not through anybody's fault. They were no. actually trying to come up with a vaccine for it. Like right. this could be one narrative. Yeah, right. And it is actually important to know the origins of the of the virus. And this virus is very weird, so that you can find a fucking cure for it. Exactly. This is the thing. If there's any chance that it came from a lab, wouldn't that it, it would be really urgent to find out because whoever's working in that lab probably has some pretty good ideas about how to find a vaccine. Yeah, like Donald Trump pardoning Susan B. Anthony. And then all of a sudden, in response to that, Susan B. Anthony needs to be canceled. There's just this real like I, I think that Trump derangement syndrome is real. And I fucking like orange man bad. I really hate the man. But if Donald Trump says the sky is blue, that doesn't mean the sky is red. And so I think 
the response to COVID, it has become this tribal red, blue state. Masks are, you know, for liberal cucks right. or, you know, or, you know, the, the government, it like, don't tread on me shit. Like it's, it all has become mediated through these culture wars. Yeah. It, that is so frustrating because I have never been more confused about anything in my life than, yeah. than this virus. And, you know, I am still down here in Appalachia. I might as well come clean. So I, I I went on your show several months ago to talk about how I had written about coming from leaving New York and coming down here into the mountains to escape the virus, save my building from myself. I had a, a, a new puppy, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I'm still down here five months later, by the way. So all those people who were worried that I was like exploiting the economy and, and all that, I have I have paid into the economy in many, You're local many now. ways. Yes. I have bought farm fresh eggs from the egg lady down the road. Confederate flags. I have gone into the Walmart Supercenter many times. So it it runs the gamut. L- let me ask you, I want to interrupt you really Please. quick just to ask you. So you went down there with your friend and your friend is gone. So are you totally isolated? <laughs> My friend is gone. Yeah, I've been here with the dog by myself, totally by myself for for three months. How is that? Like, what is that like? I mean, I spend a lot of time alone, but I have a wife who comes home from work. Yeah. You know, so I, well, yeah. I mean, it's not like I never see another person. So the people who mm-hmm. own this house, they're, they have a farm and they live across the road. So I see them, you know, if I was in trouble. I did get stung by a, a hornet and had an oh, anaphylactic God. reaction. And oh, so God. I had, so I also, I patronized the urgent care. The pharmacy? I, no, yeah. the, the urgent care. <laughs> And so, uh, oh, yeah, I actually did end up using health services. That was one of the things that the um, Appalachia Anti-Defamation <laughs> League was concerned about, that I was taking up precious hospital beds. Right. So my friend ended up getting into a bicycle accident and had to go to the ER. So we took up medical resources that way. There was nobody in the hospital, by the way. Zero. No, but nobody in there. Were there Are there any COVID cases in that area? Not at that time. It, now there are more. But at that time, there were like single digits. So you did not kill a local because your friend got into a bike rack. You didn't use one of the, the few ventilators available. I don't think I have killed any. I have killed many bugs. But yeah. um, what was I saying? So being, oh, there's nobody around. I, I do, you know, I see like people down the road who live down the road and that kind of thing. But um, no, I haven't had any socializing. I had some friends come through once. That's true. I had a, um, family friends visited, but nope. Other than that, just me and the dog. And the podcast. Well, I think I would be, I'd probably have so much liver damage right now. If left to my own devices, I would just be subsisting on like watermelon and, and PBR. Oh, well, not bad. It's not, it's not yeah. a bad way to live. You lose the weight by not eating and then you gain the weight <laughs> back by drinking light beer. But actually the reason this all came up was I was going to say I was, I was actually in the UPS store today, as a matter of fact. And, you know, this was in uh, sort of a, no, in the in the town in North Carolina, actually. And I was overhearing, there were a couple of guys in there. There was like the guy who worked there and there was a guy who came in who, you know, drove a pickup truck. It was a very nice guy. He helped me carry my boxes into the store. And, you know, I was overhearing their conversation and they were just having this conversation like, gosh, like, I can't believe this. Can you believe the way things are? You know, if, if a year ago someone had told you that this is how it was going to be, you know, could you believe it? Like that we're living like this. And it was exactly the kind of exchange that I would hear anywhere. Like you would hear it in Seattle. Like I would hear it in New York. Like it was just a kind of generic, oh my gosh, how has it come to this kind of conversation? And then it turned into, well, 
it'll all be over after November. Everything's going to change. And it's again, okay, yep, that's the kind of thing I would hear. They said, if Trump is reelected, they will find something else to be upset about. They will find another thing to obsess about. They. They meaning like the media, the media, the messaging, the news. Me, if Biden is elected, the swamp will come back and we better stock up on ammo now. That was a conversation. And it was fascinating because like they were coming from exactly the same place I come from in terms of my confusion and my reaction to the incoherence of the whole thing. You know, the difference is that on our side, if it's like if Trump is reelected, you're not going to stock up on guns. You're going to try to get a Canadian passport. I don't even know that I would do that. I mean, but it's like, I know, I know what you're saying, but it's like, we're all confused. Like we actually agree on like 90%. I have to say, I've been down here for almost six months. I have not seen a single Biden sign, all Trump. Yeah. I mean, that's true in in my area. So I live an hour ferry ride outside of Seattle. And when you leave like a 15 mile radius outside the city, it turns into Trump country. I don't think that Trump is actually going to win my like my district. My district went blue last time. I think it'll blue, go blue next time. But I've seen two Joe Jorgensen signs, the libertarian candidate, and not a single Biden sign. And this is 15 miles outside Seattle. You know, I saw the other day I was driving in, in like a rural area not far from me, and I saw like a big gate, like a compound with huge like QAnon <laughs> like paraphernalia yeah. all over it. You know, and I I think this is actually good that you're seeing this and it's good that I see it because most people who work in the media don't see this. No. And like they live in New York, they live in L.A., they live in D.C. They are totally disconnected from what is a significant minority, if not the majority of American thought. Or I think they see it through really extreme manifestations on social media. Like sure. they see the raging uncle when they go home for Thanksgiving or they see sure. like the handful of people that they went to high school with who are, you know, ranting, wanting to own the libs on Facebook or whatever it is. But they don't right. just have the quotidian interactions with the people who are just like right. living their lives actually like we do. And if, if this yeah. didn't come up, we would all get along fine. And in fact, like, I don't even know if I was to ask them, what was so bad about one side and good about the other side, I don't think they would really be able to answer that <laughs> Yeah, any better than a lot of people. Like, it's just, yeah. is it Fox News? Like, where are they getting this? I don't know. You know, there's this interesting thing where, like, I think you just experienced this and I experience this on a regular basis, where people assume that your political beliefs are like yours. Like, so these people probably didn't see They did, actually. I think they, they were, were. And, oh, they and I was wearing a mask, so. Ah. And, <laughs> and they this one guy was not, you have to wear a mask now. The guy working in the store was, and the guy who helped me with the boxes was not. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder if he was, uh, try- like, like, pe- like, pegged you for a, for a lib and was, like, actually trying to to trigger you. I don't know that. Oh, he, no, he wasn't wearing a mask even when he walked in, but, um, I think, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. So, so I have a, you know, I, I act like you living out in the country is like, uh, like, how are you surviving? I like, I'm surrounded by Trump people and my, my closest social contact is an 86 year old 
Trump supporter. Um, I went over to his house today and he was wearing a T-shirt, probably a 30-year-old T-shirt, that said something about how if they take the guns away, the only people with guns left are feds. Um, <laughs> he has literally 200 guns in his home. And of course, like seven cars, none of whom actually, none of which actually run um, in his driveway. So he is sort of a stereotype. He's also my best fucking friend at this point. You know, he has a dog. I have a dog. Our dogs get along really well. And so I spend most of my social t- my my social life is basically just my wife and this guy. And we don't talk about politics. Like at one point, he he referred to a woman down the street who uh, does some canvassing for the Democrats. He referred to her as a bitch, uh, which, of course, not politically correct. I did not tell him he needs to read some Judith Butler, but <laughs> not politically correct. And I thought, sort of thought like, you know, like, does he think does does my next door neighbor think that the that the lesbians across the street are Trump supporters? But at the same time, my other my neighbor on the other side of me is sort of a SJW and she talks to me about how J.K. Rowling is transphobic, Mm. you know, and I don't agree with either of these people. So I tend to just keep my mouth shut if they want to, you know, hear what I think they can listen to my podcast. But you sort of nod and smile and like, I like these people. I can get along with with all of them. I would just prefer really not to talk about politics. Do they know anything about your podcast or have any clue what you discuss on it? Uh, Some people do. So a neighbor on another side, he knows about the podcast because he heard me. He listened to conservative radio and I was on the local conservative radio station talking about a ridiculous little mini scandal here in Seattle where a woman, a very successful business owner, a white woman with dreadlocks was called out on social media and uh, for, you know, the sit of appropriating a hairstyle. Um, And so I was on the station talking about that and he happened to listen to it. So he sort of sort of clued in. But for the most part, every once in a while, if I. I've written some some about this area, and so when I meet people like at the dog park and they were sort of chatting, if they find out my last name, they might know who I am. Um, but for the most part, like, no, pretty Your anonymous. wife is a nurse, right? Yeah, she is. What does she think about all this stuff that you cover? Before we met, she was a normie. Uh, she was a normal. She still is. Um, she's not hyper online. But She's the sort of person who I think, like most people, if she like turned on MS, she's a liberal, but if she turned on, you know, was raised evangelical Christian, so I think has a a sort of broader perspective, went to a a Christian college um, and then moved to Seattle and lost all that. But I think if if we hadn't met, she would probably be a little bit more on the sort of woke, you know, probably would just assume that Robin D'Angelo was correct. Because she lives with me and she hears me constantly railing about this stuff, it's changed her her perspective. And I've turned her on to some of the podcasts that I listen to, like the Fifth Column, for one. Um, and she's like listening to them on her own. Uh, so I think that is she's being reeducated slowly. <laughs> do you miss your old friends? Yeah, I do. But I don't think they would like me anymore. And I don't know that I would like a lot of them. It is... Like this thing happens where I'll realize I haven't heard from somebody in a long time and I'll like look them up on Twitter, or Facebook, you know, and, and I like I've lived in Seattle for six years, but I spent most of my life in North Carolina. So I, I really consider that my home still. And, and so most of my long term friends are there and I'll look them up and I'll realize like, oh, you don't follow me on Instagram anymore or Twitter. Or you unfriended me on Facebook. And that happens kind of a lot. And there's never any, but nobody ever calls me and says like, look, you know, I think that some of your views are problematic. Um, and therefore I like, I'm, I'm distancing myself right. from you. They just disappear. And that's hurtful. It's super hurtful. 
and I miss them. And I, and I, I hope that at some point they will come to their senses and they will come back and say like, I'm sorry, I was wrong. <laughs> That's like a fantasy. Yes. It's uh I know it has yet to happen with a friend. It has happened with, um, with strangers. People have approached me and said like, you know, I, I read your work or I, I read about your work and I thought you were terrible. And then I actually started looking into it. I realized you were right. right. But the friend thing is so weird because like, I'm yeah. sometimes I'm torn. It's like, you know, I don't, like they're not thinking about me that much. Like I'm really, they're not thinking right. about me nearly as much as I probably think about a few of them. Like it's just, um, mm-hmm. so I, it just becomes this kind of like circular narcissism. Totally. And it, it makes you feel sort of, sort of persecuted, you know, um, in a way that I don't think is really right. Healthy. It's not like, I, I'm not sure that I feel persecuted as much as I just, I, again, I just, it's like, I don't trust myself. Am I gaslighting myself? Right. Am I the like literal Nazi that people think that I am? Right. Or like, they're just not thinking about you. Like it just, you know, there could be like, oh, well, this person doesn't want to hear from me. Like, should I take this person off my mailing list? Because they're, they're not going to want to hear from me. And like, that's ridiculous yeah. because they're just busy. Yeah. Everybody has their lives. Like it's, you know. So a lot of that I can accept a lot. I think, I think, you know, especially as we age and I'm in the the, the life stage where almost everybody I know is having children. So there is that element of like, just the natural aging process where friends become less of a central focus in your life than family does. But I think they're like, I know the people who have unfollowed me on social media. Sometimes I know, I know that this is about politics or about, you know, uh, I, I think there's probably some guilt by association stuff where people were um, sort of schooled because they were friends with me. Mm-hmm. And then, but I think for, for most people, yes, for most people, it is just sort of the natural aging process of just, you know, friends yeah. coming up. Yeah, and I often think, like, how is it that we all just got along so well for decades? This stuff just didn't come up. You, you could be in a social situation with somebody who, you know, maybe you think they're like a little woo or a little sentimental or a little this or that, but it didn't matter. But you dealt with it. Totally, totally. I mean, God. If I were only friends with people who believed the same shit that I believe, I wouldn't have any friends because so many fucking lesbians believe in astrology. <laughs> Is that right? I'm serious. Is that a thing? Oh my God. Oh my God. It's fucking, it's endemic. Like, the real pandemic is astrology. <laughs> well, that is a conversation for another time. Thank you so much, Katie, for speaking with me. And uh, I hope we can do it again soon. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Good to talk to you. That was my interview with Katie Herzog, former writer for The Stranger and now co-host with Jesse Single of the Blocked and Reported podcast. Again, an extended version of this interview is available to subscribers at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. So please check it out if you want more. Meanwhile, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for more information, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. I hope you will tune in next week. I'll announce the next guest very soon on the website and all the usual social media spaces. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now for ridiculously low gas prices, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway.
Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based in inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW.